We turn this morning then in God's Word to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. We'll be reading all of chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 we're going to skip over to verse 23 and read those three verses at the end of chapter 2. Let's hear God's word to us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pitham and Ramas. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread, the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. All their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Then to the end of Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
inspire the reading of God's Word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. I ask that you'll be with us throughout today. I ask that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains this portion of Scripture to us. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. If you're filling out the sermon outline that we distribute, three points. First of all, just an introduction, very briefly. Secondly, our second point will be Israel's slavery to examine what God's Word tells us in this first chapter of Exodus. And then thirdly, the church's bondage. So an introduction, Israel's slavery, and the church's bondage. First of all, just a couple of brief notes. As I said, we're going to begin a new series of messages that will take us, Lord willing, through the end of April. It will be on the life of Moses. The reason we're looking at it is that Moses' life, perhaps more so than any other character in the, in the Scriptures, is a life that foreshadows the coming and the work and the ministry and the glory of Jesus Christ. We see almost every facet of Christ reflected in the life of Moses. Now, having said that, when you use the word foreshadowing, it means Moses is there pointing us to Christ. He is not Christ. He is not the fulfillment. He is a sinful man. He is a man, an ordinary human being such as you and I, that is distinguished in many ways by gifts and abilities and by his relationship to the Lord. But he is still sinful. We do not look to Moses as our ultimate Savior. But he does show us, he does illustrate, and he was a picture for the people in the Old Testament to point them to the one who would be their Savior, even Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, not only, there, there are so many parallels that, that you can find between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus Christ. But it's also interesting that Jesus quoted Moses more than anyone else in the Scripture. Seventeen times he quotes Moses. It says something. There's something going on when Jesus himself, in his ministry here on earth, is reflecting back upon the life of Moses. and He's, he's, he's calling attention to Moses' life almost as if to say, Look at that. Look what God gave you. Look what God provided you. Do you not see that he was the foreshadowing of your Messiah, your Savior, the one who is the great I Am of me? Second thing, Israel's slavery. That's where we begin in Exodus. Next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, we'll, we'll deal with the rest of chapter 2 that we did not read today, the birth of Moses, and see some interesting parallels between him and Jesus Christ. But today it's sort of just the background. That's what Exodus 1 is. It's just giving us the background, the context, to why it is that God brings Moses into the scene. Moses is brought into the scene in order to be Israel's deliverer. 
He is the one through whom God is going to work to bring his people out of this slavery into the glorious freedom of the land of Canaan. Immediately you ought to begin to see the parallel. That just as Moses is the deliverer out of that slavery, so too is Christ our deliverer from the slavery, from the bondage that we as God's people are in as well. But perhaps there begs the question, why are the people of Israel in slavery? What is the reason for it? Well, Exodus chapter 1 gives to us a couple of reasons. One is that Joseph is no longer known. For those of you who are familiar with the text of the Bible and the stories of the Bible, this comes as no new information. But perhaps for others, this might be new. Joseph, who is one of the sons of Jacob, was sold as a slave down to Egypt by his brothers. While there, over the course of some 17 years... God's providence works things out in such a way that Joseph ascends to the second highest position in Egypt under the Pharaoh. God does so and works that way in order that Joseph would be in a position to save his father and his brothers and those households that we read about in verses 1 through 7 from a severe famine that was over the world. Joseph was given revelations by God about this coming famine. And so he stored up for seven years for the seven years of great famine that was going to come across the world. He is indeed a great hero. Even the Pharaoh acknowledges this. But as chapter 1 of Exodus is saying, over the course of time, Joseph's exploits in order to be a benefactor to Egypt, to make them wealthy, to give them life even as he gave life to the people of Israel is soon overlooked. When it says that there is a new king, it probably doesn't mean necessarily a father and a son because then probably the story of Joseph might have been communicated down. It probably means a new dynasty. That there's been some sort of civil war, there's been some sort of inner conflict within the nation, and now we have a new dynasty that is taking over, and they're basically going to be dismissive of anything that happened in the old dynasty. Not unlike what will probably begin to take place in the next several days in our own country. The president, pretty soon, the old, what has been accomplished, will probably be wiped away. Some people will see that as good, and new things will be taking over. New dynasty. Old, let's write it out of the history books, let's bring in the new. Let's forget about that. We don't want that dynasty to be remembered. Probably because there are still family of that dynasty around, and there might still be some within the nation of Egypt who are thinking, maybe we ought to have the old dynasty back. Well, if they're known for having done some great things, you don't want that around. So you begin over a period of time to change the course of history, to change the text of history. So what happened no longer happened. There's a new king. Second reason is the size of Israel. Israel creeps growing and growing and growing. Several times in that first chapter we're told 
that they multiplied greatly, exceedingly, so that they, one text, one of the texts tells us in Exodus, that they filled the land. They're overrunning the Egyptians. Now that becomes to this new king a security issue, a security risk. What happens? Here I am, I'm starting my new dynasty. I know that we're here by force. We won a war. There are people who are subservient who don't want me to be king. What if that group that we just defeated joins with these Israelites? Our dynasty is going to be short-lived. So we need to deal with these Israelites. They're getting too large. And the way he decides to deal with them is to deal with them shrewdly. And we are told, verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them. That's the shrewdly. Now, several examples are given to us in Exodus chapter 1 about how bad it is for the Israelites. So take your text, Exodus chapter 1. We'll start at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Telling you things are changing. Apparently, up until that time, the Israelites sort of had free range. They were able to deal in all sorts of commerce. They were able to deal with all sorts of business. That was not a problem. They were able to farm and sell their crops and everything else. Verse 11 is telling you things begin to change. Now there's heavy burdens that are being placed upon them. They're being singled out. Something is happening to them that is not happening to the rest of the Egyptians. Go to verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Now now we've kind of increased it. Now there's, there's not just some taskmasters, some who are assigned to watch over guard with some heavy burdens, probably some sort of tax that was imposed upon the Israelites. But now we're going to go a little bit further. We're going to take them actually into slavery. We're going to make them relinquish their positions. We're going to re- make them relinquish their businesses. We're going to relinquish their wealth. And they're going to have to work not for themselves, but they're going to have to work for us. Verse 15. Then the king of Israel said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shipra and Pu, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now we're going to practice abortion. You see in the middle of the birth process. Because you notice that this apparently was to take place before they were born. That, that's the issue here. So when you see in the birth process that this is a boy, kill it. So we go from heavy burdens, we go to slavery, till we go now to some sort of uh, abortion sort of practice that fails. It fails miserably. Because Shipra and Pua, the two midwives, are unwilling to engage in this practice. They're unwilling to go along with it. But yet, the rule is there. This is, this is how the Egyptian pharaoh is seeking to impose his will upon the people of Israel. 1 verse 21. 
And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So now we've moved from heavy burdens to slavery to some sort of an abortion-type practice to actually the slaughter of infants even after they are born. Kill them. This is the bondage that Israel is in. This is the slavery that Israel is seeking to endure. Now, flip back to that passage in Exodus chapter 2. In the midst of that come these three verses of great promise. This is the promise. This is, this is the part where we go, wow, in the middle of all of this pain and suffering, what's God doing? Here's where we see God speaking now. I want you to notice four things. One, verse 24, God heard their groaning. He heard their groaning. Why are they groaning? Back verse 23, they groan because of their slavery. They're crying out for help. God is not oblivious to this. God is not unaware of this. God heard their cry. God listens to His people as they cry. Secondly, not only did God hear, but God remembered His covenant. He remembers His promises. He remembered that which He promised to do. He remembers that He promised that after 400 years he was going to bring his people back out of Egypt. He had told them that, that they were going to go there for 400 years, but that he would bring them back and that he would give them the land of Canaan. He would give it to Abraham and to those descendants. That wherever Abraham's feet had walked, that was going to be the land that God had given to him. God remembered that which he had promised. God remembered that which he had covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob above. Thirdly, notice that God not only heard, He not only remembered, verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. Sees what's happening. Sees these families torn away from their businesses uprooted probably many of them from their homes. He sees the the whips coming down on the backs of his people, the cruel taskmasters of Egypt. He sees their slavery. He sees the cruelty of the Pharaoh who is slaughtering their sons. God saw His people. And God provided. God provided. That's what we have, do we not, at the beginning of chapter 2. The birth of Moses. God is preparing. God is providing His deliverer. A man by the name of Moses. But it's not just a man that God is providing. Turn to Exodus chapter 6. 
This is Moses' speech that, that he's giving to, to the people. Go down to verse 6. Exodus 6, verse 6. God is speaking and he says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. See, what is God going to provide? He's not only going to provide Moses. God is going to provide them redemption. God is about to act. God is about to intervene into this situation with an action that He refers to as a redemption. Turn a little bit forward to Exodus chapter 15. We're in the middle of the song of Moses and Miriam. This is after all the ten plagues. This is after the exodus. They're on the other side. Pharaoh and his host are drowned. Verse 16. Excuse me. Verse 13. Their song of praise. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them to your strength, to your holy abode. What is coming out of Moses' mouth from the Lord? Are those words that that are just fit for the occasion of the Israelites coming out of Egypt? Or are those words foreshadowing words? Are those words that speak to us of God redeeming His people with outstretched arm. Those words of God out of His steadfast love has redeemed His people and is bringing His people to a holy place. Holy abode. No, my friends, you see what those are. Those are words of foreshadowing that are pointing us, not just to Moses, but they're pointing us to something greater. Pointing us to the coming of our Lord and Savior. Even in this introductory chapter, before we even read about Moses, God is already setting for us the stage. Giving us the picture of the people of Israel in their bondage. And that God is not unaware. God is providing. Third point. This is, you see, a picture of the church's bondage. Israel's slavery is really our slavery. The reason for it? Because of Adam. Because of the fall. Because Adam broke covenant with God. Because Adam broke that covenant of works. He did that which God commanded him not to do. Therefore, because of that... Death reigns. Death is the taskmaster. Death rules. Through the hand of Satan. We are in the bonds of sin. We all enter this world. 
as those sinners of Adam, born in chains, born in the chain of the fact that we shall die. And there is no escape of that. For the wages of sin is death. The wage of Adam's sin is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. We are dead, dead people. We're not only going to die, but we are under that damnation of God for all of eternity. The reason for our bondage, though, is not only Adam and his fall, it's our own sins. Even if one of you dared to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I'm perfect. The very fact you raised your hand and said in defiance to God, I'm perfect, proves to us that you are indeed a sinner. Because God's Word tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we say we are without sin, then we turn God into the liar. And the truth is not in us. We're in bondage. The people of Israel were in bondage, in a sense, through no fault of their own. We're in bondage because of our fault. Because of our sin in Adam. Because we would have all done the same thing. Because of our own individual sins. We're under the taskmaster. The wages of sin is death. Satan, sin, death, rule. We're in bondage. We're in chains. The extent of that, the extent of that bondage It's complete. It's total. That's why we speak in our church of total depravity. Our total inability, our total incapability of saving ourselves. You know, I think about this situation of Exodus chapter 1 and 2. And, and, you know, I I realize that that looking at it from a distance takes away the realities of, of some of the practicality of it. But, you know, you, you would think, if you, if you just read the story, you'd go, you got more people than the Egyptians. Why don't you just stand up and rebel? Why don't you just say we're going back to Canaan? Why don't you just leave? Instead, they become enslaved. Maybe that is their sin. Maybe that is their failure. Maybe they should have left. They failed to do it, as God had told them. Going to be there 400 years, and then you leave. They failed to leave, so now they're in bondage. But even then, when you read it, you'd say, you know, there had to be a little bit of possibility of escape out of this. After all, we're even going to read that Moses escapes. Couldn't others? Perhaps. Perhaps a few individual slaves now and then got away from their taskmasters. Perhaps they escaped in in some ways, maybe in small droves or a little band here or there. 
Maybe they even would have been capable of some sort of uprising. But not us. Not the bondage we're in. We can't escape. We cannot save ourselves. We are in a far worse situation than what Exodus chapter 1 described the Israelites in. When you're done with that chapter, you go, wow, that's horrible. No, what's horrible is to be in our situation. Born in sin. Born as sinners. Completely unable to save ourselves. But there is a promise, isn't there? Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 25 again. There is a promise. What a beautiful word. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. What an interesting way of phrasing it. God knew. God knew what? What is it that God knew? See, we had all those things, right? God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. What did he know? He knew he was going to deliver his people. God knew. God knew. He was going to deliver you. God knew. He remembers his promise. See to the woman, there shall come one who will crush the head of the serpent. God knew. God knew that with outstretched arm, he would redeem his people. God knew. God knew that through Moses, he would use Moses as the means by which he would draw his people out of their slavery and bondage to Egypt and lead them to the promised land. God knew. God knew that through Jesus Christ, his son, he would provide for your redemption. He would provide out of his steadfast love. God knew. God knew He'd deliver you from that bondage of sin. God knew He'd deliver you from the taskmaster of death. God knew He would deliver you from the slavery to Satan. God knew. God knew. God knew that He would provide through the body through the blood of His Son our redemption. God knew that through Christ's perfect life the bread and that through Christ's death the blood the cup He would provide for your redemption. God knew. God knew. 
Father, thank you that you are the God who not only hears, you're the God who remembers, you're the God who sees, you're the God who provides, but you're also the God who knew. Lord, may we find comfort, peace, assurance, joy, redemption in your sure knowledge of our salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And God's people say, Amen.